quite sure and welcome to At The Table, or Urthibur, a six-part series presented by Artis Mundi in partnership with Cardiff Metropolitan University. In each episode of At The Table, we have invited guests to bring their curiosity and knowledge to help us unfold and explore the artist's work. In this episode, shortlisted Artist Mundi 9 artist Miro Kazumi will be talking about his work with Zoe Butt, Artistic Director of the Factory Contemporary Arts Centre, Ho Chi Minh City, Comparative Sociologist and Historian Abu Bakr Madden Al-Shabazz, and Evie Manning, Co-Artistic Director of Commonwealth Theatre Company. Miro's work leads to discussion of war crimes that some listeners may find disturbing. It's a pleasure to be able to speak and think about this work again. Zoe Butt. Being the curator that had a hand in helping make it possible because it was commissioned for the Sharjah Biennial. Rewatching the footage, I recalled having sat through the piece with my father. He himself is Chinese and his father was actually alive during the Battle of Nanjing, which, you know, was the moment that this very senior man is recalling and I recall growing up as a child where anything Japanese was aboard in the house Um, I was not allowed to eat Japanese food I was not allowed to even question the idea of having a Japanese friend and this is me a second generation talking to my father who knew very little detail about why his father was so emotionally distraught with thinking about this particular relationship We went into the work in Sharjah and I got lost in the piece and halfway through I realised that my father has suddenly left and he's standing outside the installation almost barely able to see the video. He could hear it but he couldn't handle the imagery of this older man because he was recalling his own father. But one of the things that I love about art and particularly your piece is How can artwork stand in as testimony of something that has happened before? And to what extent can we consider it an archival document? To what extent can we study artwork as the presentation of a particular fact? Because I have to say that as a consequence of my father seeing your piece, suddenly the floodgates opened and my father was finally talking to me about this and recalling the first moment that he tried to engage his father on his feelings towards the Japanese. And I know that your work, it talks so much about this idea of a collective nation, you know, this idea of the collective body. We are recalling something collectively, and these young people in the piece are reinstituting this in a ritual by repeating this old man's testimony. You know, I, I wondered, Miro, if you, if you wanted to sort of give comment on your own relationship to your artworks, recalling little known facts and how, what's your feelings in knowing that you're presenting something that many people don't talk about? Because much of your work indeed does indeed that. Miro Kuzumi. As we grew up uh, in Japan, when our grandfather was still around, we never talked about the war. We, didn't, we never asked our grandfather, so what did you do in China? You know, they, they were all sent to China or Southeast Asia or Korea or wherever. But we never asked them these questions. But mm-hmm. in the air, we could feel that, you know, something is repressed all the time. So guilt is there. Like the, in the society, we could feel the guilt as a child. 
And we could feel that guilt and the fact that we were cruel. This fact was repressed and we could feel that. But once, you know, our grandfather started to pass away, this guilt has been disappeared. So this is really the last moment that I can really make work like this. Trauma or personal memory is, is a very personal thing. Without the body of this, for example, Mr. Kondo, the story cannot be told. So we can read the testimony. We can read anything from history book. Maybe only brief moment you can feel some realities. You can feel the cruelty of the war or, or, or us, Japanese people. But, you know, it's not never the same from actually hearing the story from the person himself or herself. And even although this person doesn't remember his testimony, still the drama is deeply within himself. Although he cannot remember the fact, he still dreams about all the cruelty that he had to witness or, and also he had to commit. He's still dreaming and he's not, he's not getting any sleep these days, you know, because of this trauma coming back to his dream every night. So the, my, with my work, it's not that, you know, I treat the fact, historical fact, like a history, a historian. But my way of dealing with history is to let the body speak the history. Although, mm. if, even if the body, the person doesn't remember it, but body remembers it, or body shows the fact that he doesn't remember. And this is really, you know, the fact about the condition of the amnesia that can mm. be very much connected with condition of um, social am amnesia in Japan. So I, my, with my work, I try to ask the body to speak mm. the truth, let's say, or, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's my, my approach, I think. I think that's a really important statement to make that you bring out the drama mm -hmm. and that comes from a trauma and mm. it's a, articulated through the body, which you've documented mm. with Kondo, you've got him central to the screen, but then you mm. also show these young people in a state of agony mm. in having to repeat. And there's a new ritual, like the reference to ritual in the work is also something yes. quite yes. particular because what yes. does it mean to be a second generation mm. and absorb mm. the attitudes mm. of prejudice, but you mm -hmm. don't actually understand why you're prejudiced, but you've mm. been inculcated to, to, to do so. I mean, Evie, with your work, I know that you're working with a lot of our people who indeed are still dealing with trauma, a lot of coming from war conflict zones. And I, the body, I'm sure, plays a tremendous part also in, in thinking about narrative and how to reshape the experience of the past. I mean, how did you respond when, when you saw Miro's pieces? Evie Manning. I really relate to what Miro is saying about the suppression of of truth, which exists, I think, in every country because it's too hard to contend with. And so ours is really about the suppression of the truth that we know of as today of the arms sales that's historic, but also that's happening right now. Um, and the UK's role in that as the second biggest arms dealer in the world. So we made a piece mm. with somebody who is Palestinian who grew up under occupation in Palestine. Um, with somebody who um, was a, sol a British soldier in, in Afghanistan and served two tours in Afghanistan and somebody who was living in Yemen at the time of airstrikes. And it's really interesting, this thought of the body, because we were making the piece. It's their bodies, you know, you are seeing them in front of you. And actually so much of our piece, obviously you go on a journey, I'm sure Mira will, you know, you go on such a journey to understand how do we 
go through all of this material, all of these lives. There is so much that you could talk about, so much about that you could say. And as an artist, that's where it's interesting about archive because you are framing it, you're editing it, you're choosing which to really speak mm. about. And actually through our process over the two years, what became really interesting to us was these bodies and to see them and to see what they're carrying and the charge they're carrying, but also both Mottman and Alex um, and Shadar, all, so all three performers um, really found music. So Mottman and Alex are techno DJs and um, Shadar paints whilst her husband plays piano and that whilst there's airstrikes on her house, whilst her house was bombed. And there was something about what the body carries. So if the body is at a rave, if the body is at the house, if the body is baking bread, like your body is also carrying all these layers as well. And the techno or the music can help you escape. Um, but then what does it mean to have this layer? Mm. And are you really escaping because you're in your body? And, and what does that carry? So we went through so many journeys of looking at, yeah, really exploring the body. Because like Miro says, that's your full, um, that's your archive. That's, you know, you can see in the way that Alex stands and walks, he's a soldier. You know, you, you, the, a soldier has a certain gait, has a certain presence. Mottman has a certain kind of playfulness as from being a child growing up with, you know, next to tanks. And he's got a certain playfulness of having to evade that all of the time. And, and it's just very interesting, I think, how it shapes a body and also to not victimize those bodies because the body will also go on and have a full life. Um, so yeah, there's so much in there around like how we frame it, what we choose to frame and the suppression, I think. When do we suppress it? When do we let it out? One of the brilliant relations with uh, for me with this piece is that the Japanese occupation of Southeast Asia is not a topic that's discussed in my part of the world. When we think about the colonial empire to Southeast Asia, people usually mm. think about the Dutch or the French or the British. But to think about being more regionally oriented and to think about it being Japan, in our history books, we here do not get taught this element. And I think when it comes to our educational institutions, you know, to what extent can art become the archive, the resource? At the moment, I don't see this actually happening in Asia to an extent that I think really should be done. I wonder if Abu Bakr has any comments here as a lecturer who's passionate about histories and revisionist histories. Abu Bakr Madden Al-Shabazz. History is important. I, I see history as a sense of memory and that framing and trying to capture the essence of what took place in the past, not just for us to move on and to forget it, but to move on and to, to embrace it. And what I mean by embracing it, allowing that narrative to surface to a point whereby we don't forget the atrocities and the errors which were made in the past. And I think when we're looking at Meiro's work, et cetera, of looking at that bodily expression, and one thing which I found quite interesting, you know, even as a historian, because I see history as a form of memory. It's a long-term memory. And the fact that Meiro basically interviewed this individual and he was talking about the genocidal behavior and all these other type of things that took place. And then all of a sudden later on, there was this forgetfulness, this, this loss of memory, which is credited to Meiro because he was able to capture something before it was even lost because there's not many of that generation left now. And what are we going to pass on to the, to the next generation? So my field as a historian, I try to look at the traumatic experiences, what empire, imperialism, colonization, colonialism, exploitation, what impact that has on people who are victims. 
And how do they frame that narrative intergenerationally? In other words, what I mean by that, how they frame that narrative in order for the next generation to take it to the next level is what I refer to as a social relay, passing on that historical baton, that social baton, that political baton onto the next generation and what they will do with it. Because with most people who go through traumatic experiences, element of of forgetting becomes very important for them to get on with the ordinary daily chores, responsibilities and roles in life. But what can happen is that the younger generation can become inquisitive because when you're denied a narrative to a large extent, you want to know more. And then eventually we may not, as a younger generation, we may not embrace it the same as the older generation. What I mean by that, like Meiro's perspective, being a second generation or third generation from the war effort, for him, he found it, it was an interest. Maybe he was trying to find his identity or his place. I don't know what the educational system was like in Japan, you know, this element of acknowledgement and whether that acknowledgement should be a, a sense of guilt or a sense of remembering mentalities and mindsets which were taking place at that time. Because it wasn't just happening in Japan. There was a lot of imperialistic mentalities that was taking place in many different countries where nation states were, you know, were expanding, were growing, were crystallizing. And there was a sense of preservation. For some people, they're trying to do away with the old ways, with other cultures. They were trying to embrace the old ways and try to bring it into a modern context. So I think all these things need to be acknowledged and recognized. But the last thing I'd want to say, just to leave us with, you know, speaking as a psychotherapist, I'm going to put my psychotherapeutic hat on now. I think if we're looking at the element of trauma, we need to look at the intergenerational and intragenerational perspective. So what I mean by that, let's have a look at some of the signs and symptoms of traumas. We can have the element of denial of reality. Okay, so let's forget about that. You know, let's just move on. But for some people, they cannot move on. They may have been the perpetrators, they need to settle these things with themselves, or they may have been the victims. That's the first one, denial of reality. The next one is perceptual distortion. If a person is traumatized because they're the perpetrators or victims, this perceptual distortion sometimes needs to happen in order for people's daily life to function adequately because food, clothing and shelter becomes important. Let's just leave that in the past. The other aspect of that can be a delusion of grandeur especially if they are the imperialist or whatever the case may be. We are better than those groups of people. And there was a justification in how we responded or acted to that because maybe some of what they did to us in the past or maybe something, maybe because we grew as a nation, whatever the case may be, we were able to do what we did and feel we were justified in doing that. The next one is blaming the victim. So the victim blaming element is one of the key elements that comes out of things like genocide and atrocities mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. It was their fault, you know, they're to blame, whatever the case may be. So when we look at those four factors, you know, denial of reality, perceptual distortion, a phobia of feeling different is another aspect as well. Feel of feeling different. Maybe the nation that the atrocities is targeted towards, maybe they were the superior beings for maybe so many generations or centuries. And because they've risen, etc., there's this mm -hmm. sense of trying to override and to do better as far as culture or high culture is concerned in order to push themselves forward. And not just to try to convince themselves, to occupy the minds of people and the lands of people the resources, the minerals, the commodities and the raw materials, because all these things come into play.
And then you see that majority of the atrocities that take place at that time, you need to look at the civilian population as well, as opposed to the soldiers, you know, because everyone is affected by it. Children are affected, women are affected during the war, after the war, if their husbands, brothers, uncles, fathers don't return. So we need to look at the trauma in all aspects, the traumatic experience by the perpetrators, mm also the victims and those victims themselves who didn't actually go for that experience because sometimes when you look at intergenerational trauma one of the things as researchers we're beginning to realize even if we didn't see or hear or smell or taste or feel it the fact is we can encapsulate those realities even if it's so many hundred years on so sometimes when people say we should get about the past etc it's not easy for those people who have to have that lived experience because like mm. I said, history is basically memory. Memory is usually long-term and we shouldn't try to make memory or history a short-term narrative for us to move on. I think we need to do as much as we can in order to, bre to bring about a better understanding, okay? Mm. But especially when it shouldn't be visited on those people who aren't part of those genocidal behaviors or atrocities. I love the idea of studying history through psychotherapy. I feel like if we were to study the past through the prisms of what you've just explained, we would have a very different relationship to the kinds of documents we're using to validate the past. Yes. And I think that's one of the most uh, challenging aspects to uh, working with contemporary artists is because they use such a vast array of media and device in order to bring about these so-called psychotherapeutic uh, moments. And I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the idea of the camera, um, because Miro, I hear you uh, in the past refer to the violence of this device. By placing a camera in, in front of a subject, there's a certain force in knowing that this is something recording. And this document that is inside this camera becomes a testament of something that can't be undone. So I, I wondered, like, you've particularly chosen your medium as the moving image, as opposed to becoming like a theatre director, which you could easily, I think, also do, because so much of your work is also dealing with mastering a certain energy amongst a group of people that are not actors. This is also a very important question for me, because I use the camera as, an, as my medium. And, you know, when you have camera and when you shooting yourself with a camera, then you can do whatever you want. And still, you know, it's your narcissistic act, you know. And this is quite different when you turn the camera around and have another person in front of the camera. Then all of a sudden, the whole game changes completely. Then once you turn the camera around and you become a director and you have subject in front of the camera, then all of a sudden this ethical question rises. Why? Because the camera is, doesn't have an emotion. It's a machine. It's just a machine. And it just records whatever happens in front of the lens. So that means like it records everything that, you know, probably this person doesn't want to show usually. Often when something that this subject doesn't want to show appears in the camera or captured in the camera, then often this image becomes aesthetically powerful or something, you know? So it has this dynamism in the camera. And this is not only about documentary or about art video, but it's always there. So whatever you see, like a news, film, TV drama, anything, 
with the camera, this always happens. I have to be very aware of the mechanism or the fact that, you know, this camera is exploiting machine. You know, through camera, I exploit the subject. This is this always happens. It's always ethical. So once you turn the camera and when you say something cruel or when you hit somebody, then hurt somebody, then that becomes, no, it's not allowed to do this. Ethically, ethically it's wrong. So this is the aspect I have to be always aware of it. And, but, you know, at the same time, I have to make an artwork. I want to make artwork. So also I have to play with this dynamism where, you know, somehow you make artwork out of this relationship. And it took me a long time. First, when I started out, I didn't know so much about this experience. So I was more uh, ignorant, I think, with this dynamism. But the more I learned about work with, with people in relationship, then I learned that ethics and aesthetic is never the same. They overlap at one point, but they're not they're a different system. So I have to find the, where, the place where they overlap. You know, for example, if I have somebody who wants to talk about war, first I have to understand what this person wants to do. That's my first step to make artwork now. I never come, come with idea and ask the person, can you do this and do this? this, this, this. No, this ne never works. So first I have to get to meet people and I have to understand what this person wants. And then also from there, I have to try to come up with an idea which can make into the artwork. Try to find the overlap between what he, he or she wants and what I want. It's not easy. And it's, you know, it's a strange balance. But my goal is to get there and find an expression or image which represents this person's trauma or represents this person's willing to do something with his life or her life and my approach to art. And if these two things meet together in nice way, then artwork happens. Otherwise, it's, it's failure, I think. <laughs> One signature trait to much of Miro's work is that that moment of overlap between the trauma being shared and the narrative that Miro is trying to push, that moment of overlap is where the viewer is ethically challenged. Because you're asking in much of your work, you're, in some pieces, it seems as if you're incredibly rude. You're mm. throwing the most absurd and banal questions when someone's really sharing their most intimate moments, but you seem distracted and you're moving a cup to the left, or you're asking them to, flick a pair of piece of hair in the wrong direction, there's this sense that you're not actually listening and you're jarring, you're making this moment of trauma the object in the room because of your denial. And speaking to what Abu Bakr just said about the denial of reality, in a way the camera through your direction is suggesting a denial of the reality of the presence of the trauma that's occurring on film. For me, as someone who's experienced many of your works now, I am absorbing history so much more because you are making me confront that ethical moment and I'm making the decision about how I feel. It's not that someone else like a historian is giving the interpretation. The judgment has been left to me about where I feel placed in the work. And I think that's the power to a lot of what I see the brilliance in artists engaging history because you're not necessarily there to say that your opinion is the best or the only one, right? You're tussling 
between so many, the players, the young people in this particular piece called The Angels of Testimony, Kondo, the older man, and then yourself wanting this history to be recorded. So you're pushing the boundaries of what to edit, what to leave in. And I mean, I think this editing process of what finally makes the cut is an interesting kind of conversation differing between film perhaps and and the theatre world. I mean, Evie, with your work, how do you approach this, you're dealing often with with personal narratives, and I, if you want to share a little bit about the editing process or the non-editing process within the works that you build over in Wales? Yeah, well, it's so interesting to hear Miro talk because there's something, obviously, the medium of film is all about fixing something. So you're fixing that moment in time. And with performance, a lot of what we do, we allow there to be a kind of live editing process. There's a kind of construct and then there's improvisation. So actually we set constructs up so that the performers can speak to whatever they want to speak about within that moment. And that could change every night. And there's something about film where you're entering into a contract with your performers to say, okay, we agree that this is what we want now. And actually in five years time, they might watch that like we all do, we watch things and think, oh, why did I say that? Oh God, how could I look at that? You know, we all cringe when we see things like that. But actually you've entered into an agreement to say, let's fix this and preserve it, which is where it enters into the realm of archive because you've made that choice of what to fix. And with our style of performance, we're allowing things to be more about the meeting of the live moment of what happens when you bring people together within the live moment and actually things can shift and change. And I suppose that's where the territory of live performance kind of differs. And I think like what you're just saying, Zoe, about Miro's work about saying, oh, can you move this hair or move this cup? Seeing the construction of the film, seeing the filmmaker constructing an image is also something I think that we like to play with. So playing with the construct of the theatre, knowing that we are there together and that kind of building Mm. that into the work so that actually we all know what we're dealing with and this is the mechanism for how we're going to have that conversation tonight so all our work is political and we're quite aware of like okay this is how we're choosing to present this tonight and you're part of it as an audience there's something kind of communal and ritualistic about that to say we're going to come together to focus on this subject tonight with these people who are like facilitating I suppose there's something in how Miro sets up the installations which allows the same thing so there's a communal relationship to the film no one who is writing a history book can say Mm. oh this is what happened and it was all about the denial of reality or this is what happened and it was this nobody wants to pin that down in black and white and actually for artists to put themselves out there and almost say this is my perspective in this moment in time I'm fixing this or we're fixing this there's something that's like a bit more of a risk there there's something where you're putting yourself on the line to say because a historian or a politician will not do that. <laughs> Whereas mm-hmm. an artist can do it. An artist can say, this is what I think about this subject now. This is what we think now. And I, I, there's something I think the role of the artist can be more brave in that way. That's what I was thinking about as Abu Bakr was talking about all these complex ideas that nobody wants to say. No, no member of a country wants to say, this is what happened hundred years ago. And it was about this, this and this. We can all look back with our different perspectives Um, And that's what art allows us to do. But it would be so interesting if history allowed that complexity. But history is revisionist. It is black and white. It doesn't allow the complexity that art can allow. Because like you said, Zoe, 
when you bring people in that communal environment everybody has their own reaction everyone's allowed their own reaction and it's encouraged through the medium yeah i think it's quite interesting to think about the political environments behind the choice of subject matter like miro much of your work has engaged certain political moments as a result of being a japanese citizen you've come from a very particular relationship to ideas of nation to ideas of what it means to possess a conscience you speak of guilt when you recall the motivations behind making the angels of testimony what does guilt look like and and to what extent is it obligatory or actually really sincere there's this issue today when it comes to how history as you were saying evie history will never allow you know the phrase history will never allow but who in fact is in charge of this mass past of of human action you know and and so much of the complexities of what i love about working with artists is that they challenge the political paradigms the funding strategies the government reforms the educational curriculums and they prompt a reassessment of our own responsibilities actually i really think that much contemporary art it prompts a certain responsibility in me to say how am i going to pass on the relevance of this experience if i can't get access to the work because this work can't be shown in japan and miro maybe you want to talk a little bit to the audience tonight about why this piece can't be shown easily in japan i've been trying to show this work in japan for the last you know since it's it's been made because i think this is very important work and everybody should uh, i i hope everyone to watch it but no institution want to show this and it's because mm-hmm. the revisionist nationalists and the revisionists are getting quite strong in society we just had a huge problem with our dark history in korea we had slavery sex slavery in in mm-hmm. korea and also in china and also southeast asia so we took korean w- women to china and made them as a sex slave that's that's a big problem but you know japan cannot as a nation cannot accept this and government cannot accept this and people cannot accept this and and we had the exhibition that who uh, tried to deal with uh, this his dark history uh, two years ago in a big exhibition and we had a huge problem a big complaints and threats like almost like a, a terrorist threat sent to the museum we had to close down the museum and it was a big problem so that you know now the japanese institution were very much afraid of getting this kind of problem it creates a mess i understand it it creates a mess but at the same time you know we we still have to show this we have we still have to recognize this part of uh, history so how do we do it and then we have to do it personally so we have to rent our own space or my luckily my commercial gallery mm. is a very brave one so she can show my work but at the same time we want the institution to recognize it too you know? <laughs> so there's a dilemma yes. it's definitely yeah. about trying to get the institutions to recognize the validity mm. of these dissonant voices i mean abubakar i'm sure that in your complex set of expertise you've on numerous occasions had to refer to very uh, conflicting forms of the past and have you ever met any institutional resistance 
Oh, yes, definitely. I think one of the major challenges was me fighting, especially since 1990, for curricular change within Wales. The narrative which seems to be projected about so-called minority groups, especially people from my culture, Africans, etc., seem to focus on this 500-year rule. We seem to be locked into this room. Slavery, colonization, exploitation, etc. And that's a traumatic experience anyway within the families. And when the nature of the curriculum or the educational system wants to reframe this and try and, and not really update it by giving the, the narrative of the, of the victims, that is a problem. So for me, I think institutions were very hostile to that type of change. Oh, obviously, we know now since, you know, March the 19th, you know, the Welsh minister accepted uh, Black, Asian, minority ethnic histories to be taught in all the areas of learning experiences within the new curriculum. It will start off in the national curriculum for the next year. And that in itself actually shows that sometimes changes can be made. The reason why that change was made was because when I joined Twitter, which was last year, the politicians, you know, in the Welsh Assembly, etc., you know, they didn't want the Black Asian minority ethnic experience to be part of the new curriculum or the national curriculum, and they voted against it. And when I came on, the people know as an educational consultant, I've been consulted with the government on educational issues, historical issues, sociological issues, political, because I'm a multidisciplinary specialist, I'm not just a historian. I marry those other subjects into the historical narrative in order to give different perspectives and understandings of the reality of what has been framed or unframed to, to a large extent. And what started happening was, was that people started to hashtag particular members of the assembly, etc. And this is how things change within two days of that taking place on Twitter. And it's mainly young people now. And this is what's important because the society that we are gonna leave is going to be left to them. They were the ones, they were 18, 19, 20 year olds who were hashtagging, you know, members of the Welsh government and, and members of the assembly, etc. And within two days of that taking place, Professor Charlotte Williams came on board to head the so-called working group, which was a part of, to look for curricular change. So what I'm trying to show here is that with people with privilege and white privilege and seeing that they have seen a deficit in their education, where they're living amongst different groups of people, within their society and the educational even though they they have that lived experience on a daily basis the educational system have gone through this denial of reality perceptual distortion trying trying to reject and to forget these narratives as if they're not part and parcel of the british or the english or the welsh experience where they're very much a part of especially when you're looking at imperialism, colonization, colonialism. So there has been a lot of rejection. I think when I started off my Black History, Black and African History Studies program at Cardiff University after I graduated in 2008, Cardiff University, they allowed me to teach outside my realm. So they allowed me to bring a multidisciplinary discipline and they never really monitored or censored any of the work I was doing because it was a sense of trust coming from me, that I wasn't going to violate that, and I wasn't here to blame people. I was just here to construct the narrative, deliver it, let's discuss it, let's see it from our point of view as well as your point of view, because history, you know, even though people like to see history as being a past event, history in actual fact is part of the present, because we're only here today as a result of what happened yesterday, and people need to acknowledge and realize that mm. and whatever has been inherited emotionally or psychologically or physically from the past is carried on 
you know, we, we may call it tradition. Tradition shares the same word as trade, an element of exchange. We give that over to somebody else. And it's what they do with it in order to maybe frame it, reframe it, or try to give it a framing in which certain groups of people, they must confront the past. They must confront the present and they must be able to use their power to try to change, to regulate things in order for those people to be part of a society. Because one of the most important things is, is like what Nigel was saying earlier, we're moving from a global to a local, is what we sociologists call globalization. You know, many of us are all, all over the world. We're all meeting up. We're thousands of miles from each other, etc. That is the reality, which means that other people's narrative is going to fall on our laps, whether it's through social media or television, and that is not going to go away. So countries and nations which have had bad past experience are going to have to acknowledge this, because if they don't, they're going to have to later on because the younger generation of our society, they want to see changes and they want to see changes for themselves and they want to know what took place in the past without it being sugar-coated or chocolate-coated, you know, to make it more digestible. Let's have a look at those horrors and how we're going to frame that. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I do think it is the educational industry, the sector of knowledge that critiques and, and contemplates that changes can occur within the social fabric. But I think that for us, Miro and I in Asia, the technocrats that organize and control much of the educational surface of knowledge today are paying dictum to economy. And then on the other hand, we are ideologically driven in that reform is not even possible to interject. And I think that's where the role of culture really has a very strong role to play in offering alternative. But we've got a couple of uh, questions from... The audience, how do you look after yourself as an artist when you're relentlessly working on traumatic pieces like this? It's not easy. The more you are involved in, in a project, you have to, you know, be connected. We have to build a relationship with a person or with a trauma. To make artwork with this person means you become responsible for this person's trauma. Otherwise, you cannot be responsible and make artwork. You have to be responsible for his scar. That's the only you know, ticket for me to interact with this because it's such a sensitive thing Then it's a big decision I have to make to step into his or her world. You know, one work is fine. You're responsible for it. So even after you make it, it comes with you as an artist. It follows you. And whenever you show it, it's always there. And also the person with, uh, with a trauma is all, also, also with me all the time with these words. Making one work after another, dealing one trauma after another trauma in Japan, America, you know, Iraq. This is, at one point, I felt like this is getting too much. And I felt like, oh, the more I make these works, the more I sometimes feel that it's getting heavy. And I, but I still, I try to be as responsible as possible. And probably it shouldn't be easy, actually. It shouldn't be easy to deal with. It's not always, you know, fun and beautiful and pleasure to to deal with this, mm. I think. For sure, because just like Mira is saying as well, when you're working on successive projects, you're unlocking something, then you unlock something else. And actually, it's really interesting because we might think, oh, we're working with this person and the trauma is theirs. But just like Habibak is saying, it's like, actually, it's ours too. So if we open something up, which is about kind of collective responsibility or looking at kind of nation responsibility or the deep history. Mm. Yes, it might be 
I've mm. not grown up in Palestine or I've not, you know, fought in a war in Afghanistan, but I'm looking at the responsibility of what it means to be a British citizen or a British subject who is totally involved in what's happened in Afghanistan, in what's happening right now in Palestine. But if you're saying we're going to do this, confront what it means to be British or what it means, you know, then you're confronting yourself. And it's really interesting because you can start something as like a theoretical thing. Like I'm exploring this as an artistic theoretical question, but essentially the question is you as much as it is the person you're working with. So you're unlocking lots of things in them and in yourself. And it's a different levels. It's obviously different levels and your priority is always looking after someone else which is really interesting because you're looking after them really because you know how much they're opening up and that's where you neglect yourself because of course you're nothing you can't compare it's not the same the trauma isn't in our bodies like we were talking about at the beginning but it's more the like layers in your mind and the responsibility and the duty of care to that person and then how you kind of bring all those things together whilst keeping sight of what you're making I think there's some process of healing that goes into all of that because you're doing this, you're making the artwork to try and create a healing. And so that healing is for the person you're working with as much as it's for yourself. So for us, it's always about everyone from the beginning being very clear on why are we making it? Like, why are we unlocking this? Because we know it's going to be painful. And then if you can be really clear and you have that agreement together, why we're doing this and how we're doing this, then you can kind of hold the why and the why can be very protective because there's something that you can believe is bigger than you know yourself you're doing it eventually for something that you feel is bigger than just your own personal you have layers of experiences with people sometimes very deep and very close and very intimate and then you might move on to another project but you're you've still got these connections and links and they have that to you and then you take that with you and over the years with Commonwealth, we've worked with so many different types of people and they all come with you. They all stay in the next project and build and build and build. And yeah, you very rarely put yourself as the priority because you're a kind of a conduit. Yeah, it's hard to identify that it is you because you're trying to make it about somebody else. You're trying to make it about the why. You're trying to make it about the big picture. You are always in that. I think if we're looking at the uh, performance in our professions, I think that the longer we're in it, I think we grow. I don't, I'm not saying as practitioners that we accept it when we're when investigating subjects or particular narratives, et cetera. I think we end up growing, especially if it's something that we enjoy mm. and we like. Like I'm 52 now. I think when I first started off looking at slavery, the impact of slavery, looking at what took place in my own family and the British and the Spanish prior to that, you know, over that 500 year period. There's no doubt there's a lot of traumatic experiences. When I wanted to become like a practitioner in a sense, you know, to deliver this, it, it was really, really difficult, but it got easy after a while because then I had to have, even though I had a passion, I didn't really have a clear vision. And once that vision came that it is about enlightening and opening up the discourse and trying to show that interconnected relationship, that interaction between groups of people through time and space, looking at, you know, time, you know, time is chronology, space is geography. And now we're living in this local village now where we're living so close. Information is going to be shared. You know, there's no there's no getting away from it. But it's what we can do as practitioners to try to express that and to be high-performing individuals in our profession. Some people do fail, they do drop out, it's too much for them. They can't handle it emotionally or psychologically. 
You know, it can be like that. One of the things that the educational system has to do now, in Wales especially, now with the curricular change, is to ensure that if we're looking at this intellectual academic development of pupils from a mental perspective, we need to look at their emotional development as well as their sort of psychological development as far as mental health is concerned. Because mental health is increasing and people can be, have mental health issues and can be fully functional. And you've got other people as a result of some of these things can actually end up having elements of anxiety and all these other type of things, which can actually drive them out of the profession. So it is a difficult one, but I really and truly believe that as the, the longer that we stay in these fields, the easier it gets. And the, um, the way we manage that is through age, which is maturity. We grow with the experience. And that's sometimes the reality of these type of professions when we're dealing with horrific crimes and genocide and exploitation, whatever the case may be. We mature, we grow with it, and we get to understand it from different perspectives and try not to point the finger and blame. It's so interesting because you do become so non-judgmental, I think, because you're working with people who are very complex and who could be framed as the bad person or, you know, they've done the bad thing. And you have to let go of all your judgments. And I know for myself, it's made me so accepting and kind of much more open-minded and not quick to judge anybody. Mm. So actually that gift of working with people is what you get and makes you more of a professional and you get mm. the professional skills around you. But actually, you know how much of an honour it is to, to be trusted by people and open-minded education, essentially, which I hope, like... Ababaka is saying that's what all young people need really is to grow up in a, a world where they're educated to not be judgmental and to kind of be able to see things from different perspectives and understand where behaviour comes yeah. from. Yeah, I'm quite struck by the number of artists who are engaging very politically contentious material and they're getting in there and they're archiving it through photography, through film, through personal testimony. And a number of artists that I've worked with uh, similarly go through a lot of guilt conscience moments because they collect a lot of data but perhaps only one-fifth makes the cut of a final work that's presented to the public. So the amount of archival material and fact that they've collected, a lot of it never makes it through to a public. And I've worked with a number of artists that feel a tremendous amount of anxiety over the fact that they hold many other narratives that are not shared. And what do they do with all of this? Because it's, in many cases, one of the only centres of a, of a collection of, of the past. And so I've worked with some artists who decide that they want to work with helping the UN share records, or they want to work with the Red Cross in better understanding, you guys think you know what happened, but I need you to know that this occurred. So I'm also aware that there's a lot of contemporary artists out there who as a way of trying to process the material that they're collecting, they're thinking what other forms of interdisciplinary practices exist in the world where the narratives I've collected could mean something. And that to me is also an interesting element to which artistic practice today gains relevance outside our own little bubble that we call art. I myself as a curator really struggle with this also. How can I create moments of encounter that engages an interdisciplinary audience that they might somehow realize the use of what's presented in a different way. So we've got another question. What do the young people in Miro's work think about the history that they are dealing with? How aware were they of this dark history? So at the beginning, of course, they are not aware of the, this history at all. 
But we learn through the Mr. Kondo's interview footage that, and also with his testimony that we learn about the history. The project is that, you know, the, the words of Mr. Kondo is like kind of floating in the society. These words lost the body of uh, Mr. Kondo because Mr. Kondo is forgetting his, you know, it doesn't, so the words doesn't dwell in Mr. Kondo anymore. And the project was to find the new bodies to these wars. It was really about, you know, these young people try to embody these wars, take these wars into their system and embody these wars so that they become a new host for these wars. It's a bit uh, the idea of uh, this film, Fahrenheit, Oh, Fahrenheit, 451. Yeah, 451, yes. <laughs> the last, you know, the, the scene where people memorizing the book in the forest. Mm, it's, right, it's like right. the idea is that, you know, people memorize the words and then, and they become the, the person who represent these words. Uh, so th- that's the idea. But I didn't know what's going to happen. And then a lot of interesting things happened. But one, there's one very symbolic thing that I want to share with you. So there's one woman. She's a young woman, and she took this testimony of Mr. Kondo gang-raping woman. That's her choice. She took that, and she tried to she tried to memorize this testimony, and she tried to speak the, this testimony in front of the camera. And at one point, her let's say performance becomes something else. She becomes her performance becomes so strong that we felt like now the the words are coming from her somehow. In the process of memorizing, the words is still somewhere and she's just repeating these words. But at one point, we felt like the words is in her system and she's speaking through her system. So the words and her body kind of, you know, overlapped. And we didn't know why. So after the whole session, I asked her, so what happened to you? And she said something very interesting to me. She said, first, she tried to sympathize as a woman. She, mm-hmm. First, she was sympathizing to the victim. So the woman who is gang raped and, mm-hmm. and Mr. Kondo doesn't remember if she was killed or not. This is a very shocking story. And as a woman, she was deeply sympathized with this woman so that she was very sad and she said sadness didn't take her farther than sadness. She didn't go any farther than that. Then at one point she decided to take a position of Mr. Kondo. And she decided to overlap herself to the Mr. Kondo. So now she took a position of Mr. Kondo and speak the same Mm. testimony. Then all of a sudden she felt like she wants to be forgiven by the victim. All of a sudden, she felt like she is a perpetrator, craved for forgiveness. And all of a sudden, her words became different. And all of a sudden, she started to cry and all that. That's what happened to her. I think that's something I learned from them. That's the value or the importance of taking these perpetrators' testimony. You know, that allows us to kind of go beyond our understanding of just you know sadness but you know asking yeah. for forgiveness and you know I totally understand and yeah. there's another question here that mm-hmm. i think is an is a neat follow-up from what you've just mm-hmm. shared mm-hmm. how does miro feel towards the soldier in the film having spent so much time with him and how did he come to terms with those feelings and mixed emotions i mean 
that's a really interesting question to follow up considering you've just seen this young woman channeling mm -hmm. the desire for Kondo to be forgiven. I mean, did that place you in a different relationship to Kondo subsequently? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, every time I watch this work on my computer or in installation, the moment I watch this work, I, I cannot help myself but cry. He was not happy. When he became 75, he started to do these testimonies. Until 75, he couldn't speak about it. But when he hit 75, he felt like, okay, I have to do this. Nobody asked him to do it, but he started to do it. And he decided to do it until he, you know, he passed away. And he went back to China every year to the place where he committed uh, the cr crimes. And he was confronted by Chinese people every year he went there. And a lot of people criticized him, old soldiers, like uh, veterans, criticized him. Well, they were like, what? Hey, you're not supposed to say these things. You know? You're supposed to mm. sh shut up. Why, why are you saying this? And he, also he criticized that, you know, hey, he, this is all my line. You know, he don't believe in him. But he's oh. been doing this. And it, it's such a sad life, I think. And of course, it was his crime. He committed the crime. But also, it was very much conditioned by the Japanese imperialism and education and the condition of the time. Mm. And he was 20-year-old. Yeah. As a basic training, he had to kill the Chinese people as a basic training in China. Mm. That's the kind of condition. So I would be very much do the same, probably, if I were in his position. I'm not strong enough to resist uh, the military order. So... I feel very sorry for him. I feel, and I, I feel that his life is not happy. He's That's definitely a, a yeah. part of a particular generation that had a mm -hmm. role to play in a Cold War theatre to which I think mm -hmm. many in the military mode felt that yeah. perhaps they had no choice. Yeah. This episode was made possible by generous support from our partners at Cardiff Metropolitan University and by Arts Council of Wales. Sound editing was by Bulb. The episode was introduced by me, Leanne Toy, Deputy Director and Head of Development at Artis Mundi. In the next episode of At the Table, we will be joined by Prabhakar Pashpute, who has also been shortlisted for Artis Mundi 9. Joining Prabhakar at the table will be curator and lecturer Zasha Kola, Sean Williams, Head of Special Collections and Librarian for the South Wales Miners Library at Swansea University, and Dr. Radhika Mohanram. Professor of English at the Centre for Critical and Cultural Theory at Cardiff University. This conversation will be happening as a free live webinar on Wednesday the 26th of May 2021 at 7pm British Summer Time. To book a ticket for this event, please visit our website at www.artismundi.org.